baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. That's a partial quote from 1 Peter 3, 21. At first blush, does this sound like he's saying that the physical act of baptism is what causes your salvation? Or how about this quote? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's from Acts 2.38. What does the Apostle Peter mean when he says this? Is he saying that baptism is required for salvation? What if a person is never baptized? Can that person be saved? What does the Bible actually teach about this topic? And can you articulate what the Bible teaches to your children, to your neighbors, to your co-workers, to a fellow follower of Christ at church? That is what we're going to unpack in this episode. This is Worldview Legacy, the show that helps Christian men become the worldview leaders their families and churches need. My name is Joel Sedekes. I'm a Bible teacher, a former pastor, and now I'm the president and executive director of the Think Institute. I have my BA in history from Grove City and my MA in philosophy of religion from TEDS, and I used to defend my faith the completely wrong way. Then God changed my attitude and my approach, and I realized that all the answers to life's biggest questions, as well as the best ways of defending those answers, are found in the Bible. And now I help believers to share and defend their faith with confidence, standing firm on Scripture, and I help them pass on that faith to the younger generation. So, is baptism required for salvation? How would you answer this? This came up in conversation with a friend recently. I found out that they were attending a Church of Christ church. And I don't know if you're familiar with the Church of Christ, but at least most of them believe, if not all of them believe, that water baptism is actually necessary for salvation. Maybe you have a friend that believes this. Maybe they believe it about uh, immersion or about infant baptism, but if they believe that baptism is actually necessary for salvation, then you as their friend, need to know how to answer. Maybe this is even a question that you've wrestled with yourself as you've been reading your Bible. What you're about to hear is a case for why baptism is not necessary for salvation. Then you're going to hear an actual conversation. I have a clip ready to play. And this is a conversation that I had with a Christian who asked me this very question because it came up at his church with his elders. You'll hear how I answered the question and then I hope you'll gain some insights into how you can discuss this with your friends, your kids, etc. This issue is going to come up. Your kids might ask you about it during family worship, when you're reading one of the passages that we're going to discuss tonight, so you need to be ready. Now, as you listen, you're going to hear a response to four questions. One, whom should be baptized? Two, does baptism cause your sins to be forgiven? Three, why, why does Peter say that baptism saves you in 1 Peter 3, 20 and, uh, 21 and 22? And is baptism necessary for salvation? We're going to get down to it. All right, then again, you'll hear my dialogue with the gentleman about baptism. Now, if you enjoy robust conversations about theology and defending the faith, then you need to know what 700 others know about our free community. It's called the Think Squad. 
And this is the group where you can discuss and learn from many others who are on the same journey that you're on. Every day we're sharing helpful resources and discussing fascinating topics that will help you become the worldview leader that your family and church need. I know you want that. I want that. That's why you're listening to this show. That's why I'm making this show. So I'll tell you how to get access to that group after this episode. All right, now let's dive in. First thing that we need to understand is that this idea of baptism comes from Jesus himself. In Matthew 28, 19, Jesus commands his apostles, and through them, by extension, he commands the church this command. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, the first thing we have to realize is who is to be baptized? Who is to be baptized? How would you answer that question? The answer is disciples. Jesus says, make disciples of the nations or disciple the nations and baptize those disciples. Now, what is a disciple? A disciple is a learner or a follower. So we're talking about followers or learners or students of Jesus. These are believers who are being inaugurated into the church. Baptism is a subordinate clause to what Jesus is saying. The dominant clause is disciple all the nations or make disciples of all nations. This is describing the extent of the apostolic mission, which is global. The apostles are to go out into all the world, and then the process by which they make disciples, by which they discharge their duty, is by going, baptizing, and teaching. But discipling the nations is the um, dominant clause here in the original language. So you baptize disciples. Now, are unbelievers, are unbelievers rightly called disciples when they haven't repented and trusted in Jesus Christ? No. Therefore, unbelievers are not candidates for baptism according to Christ's words here. One quick note on that. Prior to the term Christian, Christians were called followers of the way or disciples. So these are all synonyms. But if a baptism is necessary for salvation, then baptism is necessary to be a Christian, which means the person being baptized is not a Christian. But Jesus says to baptize disciples. You don't baptize non-disciples, but if you need to become baptized to become a Christian or to become a disciple, then that means you're not a disciple prior to being baptized, which means you must not get baptized. Do you see the conundrum here? If you need to be baptized in order to become a disciple, then can't be baptized. Isn't that funny? Jesus says to baptize disciples. There's no way around that. So who is to be baptized? In short, Christians are to be baptized. Disciples are to be baptized. That is who is supposed to be baptized. Disciples, Christians. It makes sense. We run into another potential snag when we get to 1 Peter 3, 20 through 22. Because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God 
with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So what's going on here? What is this passage saying? The passage doesn't merely say that baptism is connected with salvation, but that baptism saves. That's very strong language. That sounds like Peter is saying that the act of baptism saves you. But let's zoom in here and let's see what Peter is actually talking about. What Peter is saying is, by being baptized, the disciple is identifying with the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord. Now, an unbeliever has not identified in faith with Jesus Christ. And look what Peter says here. He he expressly says that it's not by the removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience or a pledge to God for a good conscience. That word that's rendered appeal or pledge is eperotema. It literally means an inquiry, a demand, or even a craving. In the ESV, it's an appeal. In other words, Peter is not saying that baptism is simply simply an act that washes your sin away and saves you. What he's saying is that baptism is associated with an appeal to God for a clean conscience, for forgiveness of sins. He's talking about repentance. Peter is talking about repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. That's what eparotema uh, signifies. So Peter is speaking of baptism as an act of repentance. It's an outward sign of repentance. In Acts 2.38, listen to what Peter says. Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. That sounds at first blush like Peter is saying, the act of baptism is what is going to bring about the forgiveness of your sins. But listen carefully, what does Peter say is the prerequisite for baptism and forgiveness? He says, repent and be baptized. So repentance is the prerequisite. Peter had a particular view of baptism where he didn't separate it from repentance. For Peter, baptism and repentance go hand in glove. They're really inseparable. For Peter, there is no lengthy waiting period between committing your life to Christ and the baptism ceremony. Repentance and baptism come together. Now, later on in church history, there would develop this waiting period where the where believers would not get baptized right away. That came up in the church for various reasons, and a lot of those reasons were wise. A lot of people were getting baptized prematurely. They weren't really believers. But when you read this text in context, you realize that Peter is not speaking of baptism as a saving work, but rather it's the condition of the heart that is what really matters. The condition of the heart has to be that of a saved person, a repentant person, a person who has faith. So we're getting a little closer here, and now let's just go right to the bullseye. Is baptism necessary for salvation? One of the verses that is going to be brought up in support of this doctrine is John 3, 6. In John chapter 3, the Lord is speaking to Nicodemus, who is a Pharisee, who has come to Jesus by night, in secret, with some theological questions. And here's what Jesus says as part of that discourse between the two of them. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water 
and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That's John chapter 3, verse 5. Now, John 3, 5 cannot be mandating baptism as a requirement for entering God's kingdom. This would rule out a very important example of someone who got saved at literally the last minute, the 11th hour. We're really more like the 11th hour and 59 seconds. The thief on the cross. In Luke 23, 39 through 43, we learn about a man who was nailed to the cross next to Jesus, and he died without being baptized, and yet he was promised that he would see Jesus in paradise. Now, if baptism were necessary for salvation, the thief on the cross would not have been saved. As well, every Old Testament believer would not have been saved. Now, the Old Testament believers, I am personally of the conviction that prior to the Lord Jesus dying and being buried, prior to that, every Old Testament believer went to Sheol. I think you see this in the Old Testament. Sheol or Hades is the underworld. I think there was a good side and a bad side. The good side is sometimes known as Abraham's bosom. These Old Covenant believers who were not baptized with believer's baptism, you know, in the New Covenant, they will surely see the kingdom of God. They will see it. They didn't see it right away, but they will see it. And we know this from Hebrews 11.40. In other words, those Old Testament saints were saved, and yet not one of them was baptized with believer's baptism. Now, what's going on then in John 3? John 3, 5 is likely a callback to Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. In that passage, the Lord says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean, and I will put my spirit within you. So there are all these passages in Scripture, especially, well, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, quite frankly, that use water figuratively to convey the idea of being washed or purified. So, for example, take Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. It says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. So, What's going on in this passage? Look at the, the amazing language that's used here. It's just incredible. God is going to pour out on the house of David, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the people of God. Now, he doesn't say all of Israel or all of Judah. He's using a part to signify the whole. He says the house of David, the inhabitants of Jerusalem. He's talking about the people of God here. And he's talking about a day when he's going to pour out his spirit, the spirit of grace. And as he's pouring out the spirit of grace, he will also pour out pleas for mercy. What is that? Repentance. It's repentance. God is going to pour out his spirit, and he's going to also grant repentance as a gift. And then the people upon whom he pours out this repentance and pours out his Holy Spirit, they will look on Yahweh, on the Lord, whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him. As one mourns for an only child, my friend, if you're a believer, have you not ever been moved to tears by just thinking about the Son of God who was pierced for you? That was the Holy Spirit pouring out into your heart, 
giving you repentance. And the passage continues in verse 13. It says, on that day, there shall be a fountain. Listen to this, a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. So water signifies washing, cleansing from sin. That's what's going on here. And we also see it in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 16, 11, Paul lists this list of lifestyles that will never see the kingdom of God, sinful lifestyles. And he says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So here again, we have language of, of washing, of sanctification, of being cleansed. In fact, the very act of being baptized is meaningful. Think about it. Baptism is similar to a washing. It's like taking a bath or a shower. We're doing something that we would normally do to physically cleanse ourselves, this physical action that we'd normally take. But Peter is very clear in that passage we looked at earlier that it's not the outward washing. It's not the removal of dirt that matters. It's the appeal for a purified heart. But the very fact that we do it in water is because we understand water purifies. It's symbolizing something. It's symbolizing the washing that the Lord causes within us. So when Jesus told his opponents, he said, wash the inside of the vessel and the outside will be clean as well. Which by the way, is a verse I think about when I'm washing the dishes. Not that I wash the dishes all that often, but when I do, I think about that verse. God will cleanse your inside. And that cleansing is symbolized by washing. Baptism baptism is, a, is an immersion in water. It's a washing with water because we all associate already washing and water with cleanliness. It also symbolizes burial as well. Now, talking about John 3, if this is a reference to baptism, which it very well may be, a lot of commentators say that. John Calvin didn't think so, but most of the other commentators that I read do think so. What he's saying is, he's referring to it as an expression of faith. Now, this is parallel to Romans 10, 9, and 10. Listen to what that says. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Get this. For with the heart, one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. How are these two passages connected? Think about what happens in baptism. In baptism, you are publicly, outwardly declaring your faith. You're confessing the Lord Jesus. So when Jesus makes this reference to baptism, being born of water and the Spirit, by the way, not two separate births, born of water and the Spirit, then baptism is that confession of Jesus as Lord. It's an outward expression. And this is what happens at baptism still today. And in Jesus' day, it was a very risky thing to do this. And later on, as the church begins to be persecuted, it's a very risky thing to publicly confess Jesus as Lord. It's still very risky in certain parts of the world to this very day. It can cause alienation with your family, with society, even with the government. But Jesus says in Matthew 10, 33, that whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. See, those who trust in Jesus must do so unashamedly. We have to make public confession 
of Jesus. That Jesus elsewhere said that what comes out of the mouth flows from the heart, from the abundance of the heart. And so if Jesus is in your heart, a confession of Jesus as Lord is going to issue forth from your mouth. And baptism is when that happens. Now, it's also important to recognize Jesus doesn't just say, um, be dunked in water, but he says, be born of water and the spirit. Actually, if you look at the original grammar, it's born out of water and the spirit. He's directly connecting the water with the spirit, baptism and the spirit. He's discussing the two in a as a single action, a single event in life. It's a single birth. It's what he was talking about earlier in that passage with Nicodemus, where he talks about, you must be born again. You must be born from above, is another way of rendering that. So Jesus connects baptism with receiving of the Holy Spirit. He connects it with being born again. And when does a person receive the Holy Spirit? According to Ephesians 1.3, it's when you believe. So let's to, to put all these pieces together here. Ephesians 1.3 says, in him you also, when you, he's talking to believers, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you believed. So Jesus is doing the same thing that Peter does, and it seems like that Paul does. He's directly connecting repentance and faith with baptism. There is no long waiting period where you become a Christian and then you go through a class for six months or six weeks. So baptism is not the act that saves you. If it were, then no one who was ever unbaptized at the point of death would have been saved. No old covenant Christian, no unbaptized martyr, no thief on the cross. But saved people should be baptized. People who are born of the Spirit should indicate that they've been washed and they should be baptized and confess Christ. The idea that baptism is necessary for salvation as a physical act is put to rest by Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. You probably already know that passage, but it reads, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Romans 6, 23 says, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. If you have to do something to receive eternal life, then it's not a free gift. Romans 4, 4 says, Now to the one who works, his wages are counted, not as a gift, but as his due. All right, then. Well, if salvation and eternal life is a free gift from God, then it cannot be earned even 1% through any action, any work. And yes, baptism is a work. Hear me on that. Now, repentance and faith is not a work, but baptism is a physical act. It's a ritual. It's a rite, R-I-T-E. It is a physical action. It's a work. The dunking is a work, or if you're Presbyterian, the sprinkling or the pouring, whatever, I believe it's dunking, but regardless, it's a work. The faith is not a work. The repentance is not a work. It's the reception of a gift. But salvation is free, and baptism is an expression of having received that free gift. Now, what does this mean? Does this mean that a person who is a Christian 
can just ignore the command to be baptized because that's where people go. Can we just simply ignore the command to be baptized if we are Christians? Not in any way, shape, or form. If you believe in Jesus and you have been saved, then you must obey him. That's how you show that you believe in him. It's not just lip service. That's how you show that you love him. In fact, Jesus says this himself in John 14, verse 5, that if you love me, you will keep my commandments. That is the proper understanding of baptism. It is not something that you must do in order to be saved. You contribute nothing to your salvation. As Jonathan Edwards says, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. Not even baptism do you contribute. Now, maybe you know someone who believes that baptism is needed for salvation. How should you respond to that person? I hope I've given you some grist for the mill, some things to think about. But recently, someone posed this challenge to me directly. This was during a debate stage event that I was doing on Discord. And if you want to see how that played out, listen in. I'll play the clip. Joel, I've been a Christian for one year now. I uh, am a disciple of Christ, and I'm very happy. But I've run into some issues along my faith. My church believes that there's a certain order to being saved. And I'm not going to deny this, but I'm like, why do other churches disagree with this? And here's the order. So Jesus claims that for us to, you know, for us to follow him, we have to be his disciples, right? Okay, yeah, we get that. But there's a difference between a a disciple and a baptized disciple, because Jesus was baptized, so should we. And -hmm. if you look at the Acts, when Peter was telling them, repent and be baptized, for what? For the forgiveness of sins, okay? Baptism is the forgiveness of sins. So that's what Peter says. Now, we're not saying baptism saves you, but we're saying that it's not a step in faith. A lot of churches believe it's a step in faith. No, it's not. No. How could it be a step in faith if it's more of like a, this is you're with God or without God? There's no step in your faith. No. Either you're with or without God. That's what I believe. Okay? So your question about baptism or or your statement about baptism, help me understand, what does your church say the order is? I think I missed that. So that it would be based off of Matthew 28 and 18 through 20. Jesus would say, go out there, make disciples, uh-huh. baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Praise the Lord. So that's the order that we follow because that's what Jesus told us. Make a disciple and then baptize that disciple. So the person being baptized is already a disciple, correct? Yes, sir. Okay. Uh, a disciple is a follower of Jesus, right? Yes, sir. Okay, so a follower of Jesus is someone who's repented of their sins and trusted in Jesus Christ, right? Well, if you're willing to be baptized, then yes. Um, all right. I'm sorry, I'm looking up a verse real quick. Um, yes, sir. All right. Does your church teach that baptism is necessary for salvation? Yes. And you believe that? Well, it's not what I believe. It's what Jesus said. Right. And do you, but do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus said that? Yes. All right. So is it possible to be saved without being baptized? Well, Jesus said to baptize these disciples. So yes, uh, you cannot go to heaven unless you're baptized. So do you think anyone has ever gone to heaven without being baptized? Uh, I'm going to bring up, I'm going to answer that question. I'm going to say no. And also moving forward, we're going to bring up the passage of Philip and the eunuch. You okay. know the story. Well, you make it quick, you're, before you bring in another passage, I, I do have a reason for asking that. Yes, sir. Um, so would Jesus lie to someone? 
No, sir. Uh, I fully agree with you. I'm glad you said no. That's good. Okay. So if Jesus says someone is going to be with him and go to heaven, is that true or is that false? Yes, it's true. Obviously true. All right. Are you aware of uh, when Jesus was crucified, that he was crucified in between two thieves? Are you aware of that fact? Yes, sir. Okay, are you aware of the fact that one of those thieves mocked him, but the other one trusted in him? Did you know that? Oh, my goodness. No. Oh, my goodness. No, no. I've never heard a person bring that up before. I'm sorry. Is this real? I can't tell if you're you're being real. No, 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 no. A lot of people think I'm a troll on the server. I'm not. I've never heard a single person actually I've never heard I've never heard I've never it's disputed. I've never heard a single person actually go that route before. Yes. Okay. So so your your um wow. Yeah. Okay. Wow. So so I I I guess we can put that one to bed then. I there's other there's wow. other arguments points we can make but okay. yeah. dude, I'm being honest with you, Joel. <laughs> I'm not even trolling you here. Okay. I've never heard a single person go in that direction before. Okay. <laughs> so you can be saved without being baptized. I mean, um, the reason why Peter says that uh, that we should repent and be baptized is because in the first century, in those in those early years, baptism was your outward confession of faith. When you repented, like you were going to bring up the Ethiopian eunuch and Stephen, when you yeah. repented, you were baptized. But that the baptism was it's a symbolic rite which which represents the death and burial of Jesus Christ and our symbolic death spiritual death and and resurrection with him so baptism is not necessary for salvation but it is an essential act of faith and if you have no good reason for not being baptized and you are a follower of Jesus Christ and you haven't been baptized then i would say you should get baptized and if well, you're unwilling to get baptized you should ask yourself if you really are a follower of Jesus Christ amen well I did it because I saw this as the forgiveness of sins, right? I'm not saying I just saw this as a process towards being saved, right? Now, at the end of the day, this adds up to the same thing. It does because I both we both agree that this is a step in faith. But what I'm saying is that this is the oh, like I'm glad you changed your mind. You, you said earlier that it wasn't a step of faith. Oh, hold on, hold on. no, 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 wait, 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 wait. Let me let me say this. When you're a disciple. You have some sort of idea of Jesus, but well, you don't, a disciple is someone. A disciple is someone who follows Jesus. Yes, but hold on, wait, wait. When you're an unbaptized disciple, you are you know Jesus, right? Okay, hold on. You know, let's go back to the story uh, of the two thieves. Let's talk about that again. What happened to the one thief that that believed in Jesus? What happened to him? He went to paradise. How, how do you know that? Well, you said yourself, when Jesus says you go somewhere, you go there. And Jesus said, today you'll be with me. Uh, you know what, guys? Everyone in here that's listening, I concede, and I'm going to talk to my preacher about this. Thank you so much, Joel. Well, there you have it. That was my discussion with uh, the gentleman on Discord. I literally could not tell if he was trolling me or not. I don't think I've ever had someone just go from being in the opposite position to then just agreeing with me because I made an argument. Usually in these things, it's the people who are listening who might be convinced, but the person that you're directly interacting with, they're not going to become convinced. But if he was being honest, 
which I think he was, I don't know the guy personally, then I think he came around. But now you know. Who should be baptized? Disciples of Jesus Christ. Those who are already believers in Jesus, who have repented, who have received the Holy Spirit. Those who are born again. Yes, this has implications for other things. This does have implications for infant baptism. We're not going there right now because my Presbyterian friends do not believe that baptism is needed for salvation. Why does Peter say that baptism saves you then in 1 Peter 3, 20 through 22? We saw that Peter was describing repentance and faith as two things that are, are as something that is inseparable from water baptism. Peter and Jesus associate baptism with repentance. There wasn't this long, drawn-out waiting period between repentance and faith and water baptism as there is today. But so it's associated with repentance. You're going under the water in a symbolic washing, in a symbolic burial and resurrection, and you're coming back out a new creature. But it's symbolic for what has happened internally. It's not the baptism that saves, but baptism is a response to saving faith. So if there's one thing that you walk away from today, I hope that you become more confident in your belief that salvation is purely, completely, an unadulterated free gift from God. You do not and cannot and never could contribute to your salvation at all, period. Not one percent of your salvation was caused by you, was worked by you, was earned by you. You cannot merit salvation. Scripture is so clear. Baptism is not necessary for salvation. If it were, then the thief on the cross, as well as every Old Testament saint, as well as every unbaptized martyr in the Christian era, would all have gone to hell. None of them would have gone to heaven. And Scripture is clear that that is not the case. During this filming here, this recording, uh, someone brought up that the Church of Christ teaches that the reason why the thief on the cross could go to heaven was because it was before Jesus died. Prima facie, that sounds like an ad hoc explanation, meaning we need an explanation for this. Let's just come up with one. It seems arbitrary. That's not what Scripture teaches. And if you play that out, it would mean that were the same situation to happen today where someone were to repent on their deathbed and they believed in Jesus Christ, believed the gospel, didn't have an opportunity to be baptized, that person would go to hell. That is anathematized by Scripture. That is another gospel because it makes baptism the sine qua non of salvation. Repentance and faith would not be enough in that situation. So we can see that the same principle that applied to the thief on the cross is the same principle that applies to the deathbed conversion today in the new covenant after Jesus has taken the throne in heaven. It's the same rule, the same principle. Is baptism necessary for salvation? No, it is not. Is it something that you should do if you're a believer? Absolutely, yes. So now, do you want to grow as the worldview leader that your family and church need? 
join our free community of over 700 others who are getting equipped to explain, share, and defend the Christian message. Join the Think Squad. To get access to the group, all you have to do is open up Facebook and search for Think Squad. That's T H I N K S Q U A D. Answer the short membership questions. That's all it takes. Now, as I am recording this, guys are watching it in the Think Squad and they're interacting in real time. Timmy Braun, Matthew Knapp. This is one of the perks of being in the Think Squad. You get to have these amazing conversations about life's big questions. If you're on this journey of becoming the worldview leader your family and church need, this is the group for you. So join it, check it out. Thanks for listening to Worldview Legacy. Thank you to Ellipsis and Geo, the moderators of that debate stage that you heard. This episode was produced by yours truly, Joel Sedekes, and is a production of the Think Institute. We equip believers to explain, share, and defend the Christian message. We are based by God's grace.